Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Helen Benedict, whose latest novel is Wolf Season. Novel before that is Sand Queen, also the author of nonfiction The Lonely Soldier. There are seven novels in all and five works of nonfiction. Helen Benedict is a journalist, and her books lately have been focused on veterans on Iraq, what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan, and what's happening in this country. Your last book was Sand Queen, and you chose to return with one of the characters, Naima, who is an Iraqi, She's a medical student, and now she's a doctor and living in a small town near Albany, New York. What is the origin? Did you decide that you're going to write a second book about her? Did she come in after you made your decision? How did that work? Somewhere in the middle of writing Sand Queen, which was set in Iraq in 2003, I realized that I really wanted to go on and maybe do a trilogy. I was very inspired by Pat Barker's trilogy about World War I, Regeneration, uh, where each volume of it, each novel stands alone, but they also work all together. So I wanted to do something like that. And the character I decided to, to tie them all together to stay with was Naima. So what's happened between then and 2000 and Three and now when wolf season is set, which is more like 2015, 14, she's become a refugee and has been settled in this small town in upstate New York. Why did you choose her? Partly because her story was left in a very tragic place at the end of Sand Queen without a clear ending at all, which I did on purpose. But it's also because... We're not writing about Iraqis. We're not publishing Iraqis. We're not reading about Iraqis, even though we're responsible for destroying their country. There are exceptions to that. You know, there are a few writers who've included Iraqi characters, and there are a handful of Iraqis who are now finally being published here in translation. Almost none of them are about women. So... um, I wanted to show that side of the war. After all, who suffered the most in this war? It actually wasn't us. Well, now that you've decided you were going to have Naima as one of the characters in Wolf Season, and you wanted to do something different, which is you brought her to America, we could see that. Where did the wolves come in? I know that you spoke with a vet who had wolves, Actually, that inspired it in a way. I mean, I was done with Sand Queen. I had this vague idea of a trilogy. I I didn't want to write another Sand Queen. You know, one has to start in a completely fresh direction. And I was very haunted by the story, the image of this woman living in the woods with wolves. It wasn't in New York State. It wasn't in anywhere nearby, who had indeed conceived a child while she was a soldier in Iraq who had been born with a disability. 
that really haunted me, that story. And, and it really just inspired. So I started off with her. And I think as I somewhere along the, the way of writing the first chapter, which was originally a short story, I realized how Naima was going to fit in. Did you actually meet this woman? Or did you <clears throat> I only talked to her on the phone. I interviewed her. I never met her. This was for my nonfiction book when I was doing that research. She didn't become one of the main people I concentrated on in that book. She was more background because she didn't want her whole story to be used. But she was an amazing person, very colorful, and her story just stayed with me. The rest of it's entirely invented. She was a veteran who lived with wolves and had a disabled child. The rest of it is not her. I mean, I never write characters based on real people in my novels, but I take bits and pieces from things I may have heard. Did this woman have a blind daughter or was it a no, different, different disability? It was a different disability and wasn't a daughter either. What prompted you to have a blind daughter then? I had an image of this child sitting in a sunbeam, wiggling her fingers in the air, almost as if she was feeling the dust. And why is she sitting like that? Why is she doing that? Why is she so sensitive to that? Well, she's blind. Actually, when I was in Berkeley High School, I was dating a guy whose mother worked in the local blind school. And once we went on a weekend retreat with about 100 blind kids, till we took them skiing. And I did watch how they moved a lot, and it really affected me. So some of that probably seeped in, that long-ago memory. Helen Benedict, what gets Wolf Season going, now that you have some of the characters, is a hurricane. Now, you wanted an event to just pile things on. Is that what happened? It's not that conscious. It's actually based on a real hurricane that really happened in that area where I live part-time, and I lived through that hurricane. I started writing it not long after the hurricane. But I did realize as I began to write this short story that here were a group of people who are all damaged in one way or another by the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. They're not all veterans. You know, there's a collection of characters who are associated with the war in different ways. They're all suffering because of that war, but there does need to be some kind of catalyst that will precipitate a crisis that brings out the ways in which they are damaged. But I realized that sort of afterwards. I mean, I didn't sit around and go again, what shall I have happen? Oh, a hurricane. No, the <laughs> hurricane just appeared. <laughs> so then at that point, you have a way of bringing Naima and Rin together. There's another character, Beth, who is the wife of a soldier. Did she suddenly come out of the idea that you wanted an American in there, or did she emerge where you suddenly wrote Beth? No, I did from the beginning have an idea that there would be a collection of people in this small town who were all affected by the war one way or the other, but in different ways. So I didn't want to write just about veterans or just about refugees, and that you would see the war through these different perspectives of the women, one's a veteran, one's a refugee, and one's the spouse of a Marine who's deployed to Afghanistan. And they're all very different people, and they have different reactions and different fallouts from the war. And they each have a child, too. Right. They each have a child, which is what brings them together because the children know each other. Once you've got that and you've got the broad outline of what you want to do, then comes what the book is really about, which is the subject matter. I mean, you know, writing novels are sometimes about nothing and sometimes they're about something. In this case, we're talking specifically about the effects of Iraq 
on the populations. Right. And Iraq could stand in for any war. It's really the effects of how being in a war affect not only the people who actually lived through the war, but everybody who loves them and everyone who lives around them. So it's very much about bringing the war home and how the trauma of war and the moral corruption of war seeps into even small-town life in a place that's far away from the war itself, like this little town. Some of the material, I would guess, came from research on your nonfiction and research on Sand Queen, the abuse part, and dealing with PTSD, the wife of an interpreter, what that's like. But you also had to investigate how Iraqis get resettled in the United States. How did you go about doing that, and what did you discover? Well, I started off with some of my students. I teach at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, and we've had some former Iraqi interpreters come to us as students. So I talked to a couple of them. They put me on to others. And I've also had veteran students who were still in touch with interpreters they'd worked with who'd become refugees. So I interviewed a few of those, and then further on I discovered that, lo and behold, there were some 400 Iraqi refugees who'd been settled around Albany, which is where I set the novel. So it was one of those, you know, life imitates art moments, because I had no idea that there were so many right on my doorstep. So then it wasn't so difficult to find them, and they were extremely helpful. What did you learn about their lives that surprised you? I mean, we know that the U.S. does not do well with veterans and does even worse with, obviously way worse now, with Iraqis who have helped the United States over there. But what what did you discover that shocked you even more than that? Well, I was really shocked at how little we do for them. I mean, these people had risked their lives and their families for us. I'd never met a single Iraqi who hadn't had a close family member killed, uh, often a child. And yet we give them one month's rent. We put them in some out-of-the-way place with no car where there's no jobs, but it's cheap. We give them Medicaid for eight months, and then they're on their own. And I was also shocked at the kind of prejudice and uh, cruelty with which a lot of local people were treating them. The lack of understanding on the part of so much of the American public that the Iraqi civilians were not our enemy. We were supposedly going in there to liberate them. And then the other big surprise was how, in spite of all that, how unangry many of the Iraqis I met were at us, at Americans. And at at one point I had an amazing conversation with a woman whose 15-year-old son had been killed in uh, Baghdad, kidnapped and killed because of us. Uh, And I said to her, why aren't you angrier at us? And she said, I lived under Saddam. I know there's a big difference between the people and their leader, and not all people think like their leaders. And I know a lot of Americans were against this war. So I know you're not all against me. I went, of course, but at that moment, I I hadn't thought about that until she said it. Did it change at all with uh, the election of that guy? Yes. One of the things that's happened that I find really tragic is that some of these interpreters, either who worked in Afghanistan or Iraq, who've passed two years to two and a half years of grueling tests and security checks are being stopped at the border anyway. 
And by the way, each time that happens, behind that lies a real tragedy because usually these people have sold their homes, sold all their worldly possessions so they can afford to come here, quit their jobs if they had any, left their families, gone through hell to get to there, and suddenly they're turned away, turned back to nothing. Helen Benedict, one of the other areas you had to look at is how America treats its own veterans, particularly the VA. Now, I had a friend who was a VA doctor. I died in 2011, and we would talk about this a few years before then. And he said the VA was one of the areas, VA hospitals, that really worked. But I'm sure that in your research, you probably found more recently something different. Yeah, I've almost never heard anybody say it really worked. (laughs) But, of course, some VAs are better than others, and some do work well, and some are very ill-served. There's never been enough money. There's never been enough training. There's never. It's taken forever to digitalize all the information. This recent case about the mass shooter who was former military, and the Air Force had never reported his mental instability, which should have barred him from getting a gun. Well, that didn't surprise me at all because there's an enormous bureaucratic amount of inefficiency that can result in death or neglect of people who are really needy. It's it's quite disastrous in many ways. But again, there are exceptions. There are some really good VAs too. Did you do research on how the VA treats children? There are only about, that I found, there are only a couple of um, clinics that are actually for children in the whole country that are affiliated with the VA. So I took one of them and put them in, you know, in Huntsville. So I didn't do much research because there isn't much to be done. Actually, the VA's line is your child is not a veteran, so we don't cover the child. Mental issues with the wives, which are discussed in Wolf season are also not covered, I would assume. Well, they do have family therapy, and they do have don't beat up your wife programs, you know, that they run newly returned soldiers through. They do have some programs that are supposed to help with the trauma in the home because those directly affect the veterans themselves. And there are some programs that include children in that, but they're not medical programs that I know of. There's some abuse, husband and wife abuse, that occurs in the book. What kind of research did you do on the prevalence of that sort of abuse in uh, veterans' homes? Well, it's very easy research because actually the DOD and the VA do track that, and they have statistics. The amount of spousal abuse by veterans returning from these wars in particular is very, very high. There's a very clear scene about a vet returning home, spending a few days and going back. Did you do a lot of research on on what it's like for an individual vet to come into his family? Yes, there has been a lot of research on that done. So I've just read, I've read the stories, I've read the reports. It's extremely hard to come back home knowing you're going to be sent back again and supposed to switch off your, you know, your war self and become your civilian self just for two weeks R&R and then go back again. In fact, it's really impossible. You know, we can't do that kind of adjustment. And the kinds of behaviors you need to survive in war are, are not the kind of behaviors you need to survive, you know, at home or in the civilian life. It's a mess, and many people think that one of the reasons we have the highest rates of suicide 
out of these wars than we've ever seen. It's because of all these redeployments. It's because people are being sent back over and over again, you know, with these breaks in between. So they're constantly having to try to be a civilian, you know, for a few weeks here and then back to warrior and back to civilian, and it, it really messes you up. Helen Benedict, the character of Rin was actually a combat veteran, and we don't hear much about women combat veterans now. Uh, you did an interview, which is on your website, in which you talk about your research on that, and they get really ignored. Yes, and it's absurd because, in fact, women have been in combat since the beginning of these wars. So we're talking 2001 because there are guerrilla wars and there's no such thing as a front line. So when the combat ban was a ground combat, I should say, was officially lifted two years ago, it wasn't really, oh, you can fight now. It, it was really a recognition that, okay, now we will f officially admit that you have been fighting. At least that's how military women saw it. But, of course, it means that now they're officially allowed to join the infantry and other all-male units. And it also means that they can no longer be denied the benefits that only combat vets are supposed to get. Because that's one of the things that was happening to women. You know, coming back with wounds or PTSD or other effects, TBI, traumatic brain injury, from being in a combat situation. And the VA would say... You're not allowed to be in combat, therefore you couldn't have been in combat, therefore we deny you treatment, which was uh, so unfair. So at least that won't go on anymore, I hope. If a woman <clears throat> still is hurt like that and she wasn't specifically in combat, she'll still be denied now, right? Depending when it happened, she could be. Again, it depends on the individual VA and the stubbornness of the bureaucrat that she has to deal with. I've heard many a story like that. In that interview, you also talked that 90% of women reported sexual harassment. Yes. And something like 20 to 30% were raped by soldiers, American soldiers. Right. They're the guys on their own side. The, the numbers are completely shocking. They go up and down a little bit from year to year, and the Defense Department's always trying to claim they're lower than they are. But the, the fact is, even though there have been a lot of reforms put in since I wrote my first book about this, which came out in 2009, the numbers haven't gone down enough. And not only that, the retaliation against anybody who tries to report a sexual assault in the military is staggering. A woman who tries to report such a thing is 12 times more likely to be punished than a man who commits one at the moment, according to Human Rights Watch from two years ago. So we've got a long way to go. And it might actually be worse now under Trump, or would that make no difference? I don't think we know that yet. You know, these things are tracked year to year, and it's always really hard to know whether you're getting more assaults or more reporting of assaults. It's always hard to know how to track, you know, the effect of something like having a predator in the White House. Uh, we can only guess at it. But one <clears> of the things I've noticed and it came up when I was reading Wolf Season, is you could look in the papers and it's all filled with tweets and articles about the latest celebrity to, uh, to have been harassing women. And there's very little right now about American combat. It's virtually disappeared, but we still have troops on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes. The war has gone secret. 
it's not only that our attention has fixated on what's happening in the White House and the government and Russia and everything, you know, the everyday shock of the news, but it's that the Pentagon itself has been burying what we're up to, in, still up to in Iraq and Afghanistan. New York Times just has been doing an investigation. They put out an article saying that, in fact, we're killing 36 times more Iraqi civilians than the official numbers of the Pentagon admit. So we are now waging a kind of undercover secret war that the, that the American public isn't being told about. In both Iraq and Afghanistan, I would assume. Mostly Iraq, under the name of fighting ISIS. And we're also, what we used to do is at least try to account for all the Iraqi civilians that were killed, contact their families, and offer some compensation as a gesture of respect. We've stopped doing that. What we do instead is we list them all as ISIS fighters, even though when you start looking into it, a lot of them were innocent families and children, you know, and, and they're the victims of ISIS, not the fighters. So at this point, basically, we have no idea what's actually going on. We're just hearing stuff. Yeah, and we're not paying attention anymore. I mean, most Americans think the Iraq war is over and has been for a long time, which is, you know, to bring it back to wolf season is kind of a challenge as I talk about it or, or get reactions from readers because we think, oh, it's a historic novel, isn't it? <laughs> you also did research on wolves, what did you learn about wolves that surprised you? That was fabulous fun. I discovered this place that's actually called Wolf Mountain in the northwestern corner of New York State, which sounds like it's something out of a fairy tale, but it exists. And on it was a wolf preserve. And I spent a long, long day there watching wolves close up. There was nobody else around except the staff. There was only a fence between me and them, and I could really watch them closely. The wolves were very relaxed and watched their behavior, and then I did a lot of reading about it because I realized if I was going to describe Bryn looking after her wolves, I had to know what that entailed, and then I had to find out whether she could even do that legally, and how do you feed a wolf safely, you know? and how do you doctor a wolf safely, and how do you stop the wolf from tearing your children apart, you know, and how dangerous are wolves anyway? So I had to find all that stuff out, and it was great fun. And it sounds like they're not dogs. <laughs> they are not dogs. And they can't be domesticated. They can't. They are deeply in, deeply wild. And they are also much more intelligent than dogs. The hippocampus, which is where we store all the learning in our brain, is 40% bigger in a wolf than a dog. So. And they're monogamous. <laughs> yes. And they have very complicated packs with everybody has a job and a very complicated language of howling and growling. Different sounds to mean all sorts of different things. And a lot about the social dynamics of their packs is uncannily human. <laughs> when you were writing the book, how did that affect the writing, what you learned? When you write a novel, you have to inhabit each character. You have to become that to make that character feel real and authentic and to, and to engage the reader as much as you want. So to inhabit Rin, I had to really understand Wolves as much as she did. Without that, I would have been moving her around like a toy, you know, <laughs> and it would have felt like that. And then also the Wolves mean something different to each character in the book. 
Yeah, animals are ultimately unknowable. I know not everyone will agree with that, but I think so. And we project onto them what we need to project onto them. So everybody in the book projects something different onto the wolves, and yet the wolves are still very much themselves. When I asked you about how the wolves, learning about wolves, affected the novel, that brings up another question is, what kind of research did you do while writing the novel that changed the novel? You know, there's a point with fiction where it's not about the research anymore. In fact, if you let the research overtake, it'll cage in your imagination and you end up writing bad journalism, you know, or, or bad fiction that sounds like journalism. So I would twist your question around a bit and say that the important point was to put the research aside. I mean, I had spent so many years at that point listening to veterans of the wars and so many years also listening to Iraqi refugees that it had seeped inside me. So I didn't need to do a whole lot more other than the wolves, which was new, and some about being blind. At that point, the important thing was to let my imagination take over and what I know about human nature. And that's why you say that the characters surprise you. I mean, yeah. no, obviously you're writing it, so these aren't people. They're coming from you. Right. Now, that's what I love about writing fiction because the, the surprise comes in the writing because it's only in the writing that you start to get to know the characters, which is why you have to do many drafts. It's a bit like you first meet someone, you have a drink together, you come away and you know a little bit about them. But if you keep doing that and you keep talking to them after a year, or two years, you know them in a whole other way. Well, it's very similar with even though they're not real people. So you have to keep writing them and writing and rewriting and discovering them and getting to know their voice and their ideas and their behavior. And at the same time, there's something that seems so, it operates so much on an unconscious level, an instinctual level, that that's where the surprise comes in. You go, I didn't know I knew that about people, or I didn't know I knew that kind of character enough to make her do this or that or the other. Wow, I didn't know I knew how to say that, that what I make Rin say. Or, and that's really fun because you're discovering a side of yourself that you don't know normally, so was, and a side of your knowledge you don't know normally. Helen Benedict, what did a character do in wolf season <laughs> that surprised you that much? Well, Rin did some pretty bad things that surprised me. I didn't know I would invent a character who could be that unwise. I don't want to give away the plot, but she makes some very bad moves. And so does Todd, you know, Beth's husband. And then Lewis has a dark secret how to write about people who've done the sort of thing that I would never do myself, and then how to understand it in a moment of, oh, that's why, that's why he behaves that way, or that's why she behaves that way, is kind of a surprise. You started the book. Were you aware of the events that would happen, say, with the character of Todd, the active soldier, or what would happen with Rin? I knew more or less how I wanted the book to end. Usually I have a beginning and an ending and how the arc in between just happens in the writing. So no, it's a discovery as I go along. So you you kind of don't know those things. You just kind of follow along and see where it goes. But yeah. that means that sometimes the ending might have to change. Yes. Oh, yes. 
And you often go down tributaries and dead ends and have to cut them off and come back. You know, you make a lot of mistakes doing that. But the plot comes with the writing for me. I mean, some people do plot out everything ahead of time, but I don't write that way. Yeah, John Irving starts from the back and works front. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, you know, if you're going to let the characters breathe and if you're going to let them learn, you're going to learn who they are as you're writing the characters, then obviously some things you thought they might do later on in the book, they're not going to do. Right, because the characters have developed and then that becomes too uncharacteristic. Likewise, they will do things you never imagined them doing. But it's where I would say that the the part of, of the brain that plots and thinks and maps out plots is much less imaginative than the part of the brain that just invents as you go along. At least it is for me. So plotting it out beforehand is not only comes out duller, but then it would feel like joining the dots when I write it, which wouldn't even be fun. (laughs) Also, as a journalist, you've got another issue, which is that you have very strong opinions. You have strong opinions about veterans, about Iraq, about the government. And yet at the same time, when you're writing a novel, if you let them sink in too much, they can take over the book and kind of take away from what you're really trying to do. How do you avoid doing that? Oh, yeah. You have to be very careful not to turn your novel into a polemic or to sound preachy. That doesn't mean that sometimes a character themselves might not be a bit preachy. I mean, right. if it's if it fits their character, you can do that. You do that by, you know, by making the characters real people instead of stick figures who are just, just acting out your ideas. Now, Milan Kundera, for example, I would say that he creates stick figures to act out his ideas. The reason his books work they don't work on an emotional level. They don't work on a level where you really love the characters. They work on an intellectual level of argument. So that when you read his work, if you can put his misogyny aside, you can um, you, you feel like you're having a real argument or a debate with him, which is exciting. But it's a different kind of book than I'm doing. You have to sort of suppress that, I would guess, because it's going to come out. You don't yeah. want the characters to be puppets to your ideology. Not at all. And that's where the editing comes in. If I if I see myself over-explaining something or forcing a character to say something that's really my opinion, out it comes, big red mark, <laughs> delete button. So. I have a question here that I think I can answer. Which you like better, writing fiction or nonfiction? It sounds like fiction is probably more fun. Oh, it's much more fun for me, much more fun. The discovery exciting part of nonfiction is in the research. That's the fun bit. The interviewing, that's my favorite part. When you're writing it, you already know everything. And then it's just you're trying to figure out a structure for it, which is very mechanical in the end. Whereas with fiction, it's more like sculpted or controlled daydreaming. So it's a lot more fun. (laughs) But at the same time, without the nonfiction... The fiction can't come as easily because your research is in that nonfiction. Well, you know, let's not forget that it's only the last two novels that I've written that have been that so closely tied to my nonfiction. All my other novels before were independent of my journalism. I've always done enough research to make the setting and, and the events and everything authentic and plausible. 
but they're not guided by research and they're not tied closely to research. So, you know, it's not as if most novelists also have a career as a journalist. There are a bunch that do, but there are many who don't. Well, actually, from what I've seen, a lot of novelists started out as journalists and then moved over. Yeah, uh, a lot do, but some not all. Um, but they usually do that because it's the only way to make a living and write. <laughs> Helen Benedict, uh, when I was looking on IMDb, I saw something about a documentary called The Invisible War, and it pops up on your website as well. What was your involvement in that documentary? Pretty high. After The Lonely Soldier came out, I got a call from Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, who made it. They'd read my work. It's actually my first article in Salon they read. They wanted to do a documentary on that subject. Could I help them? And meanwhile... I had been contacted by an amazing lawyer called Susan Burke who said, I've read your work and I've got an idea of how to sue the Pentagon, which is like music to a, to any journalist's ears. And so I put the two in touch with each other because the documentary people wanted some kind of plot or storyline to follow. And the, pl the plot and storyline was this class action suit that Susan Burke was putting forth with 17 women and men who were all survivors of sexual assault in the military. And they were also suing uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time. And that became the documentary, The Invisible War, which was nominated for an Oscar in 2012. I'm in it as an interviewee and was watched on Capitol Hill. President Obama saw it, you know, all the top generals saw it. And that opened up discussion of sexual persecution and mistreatment of women in the military and men in a way that had never been happened with my book, because movies have that power, yeah. I'm afraid. <laughs> is, is it streaming anywhere now? Yes, I think you can get it on Netflix or something. You can stream it. It's still out there. You also <laughs> were interviewed for another documentary called Equal Means Equal. What's that? That's about wanting to revive the ERA, Camila Lopez. She's got a very powerful argument in that documentary about how much we really need the ERA. And she points out that America is one of the only countries left in the world where women don't actually have the same legal rights as men uh, across the board. And then there's a TV series called Women, War, and Peace. What's the story? You're an advisor for that. What is right, that? Right, I was a consultant for that. That was a fabulous PBS series. One episode took place in, in the Balkans. It was about that war and about rape and what happened with the Serbs and the Bosnians. Each one is a different country in a different war. So I was a consultant when they were talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. But did you learn anything about the uh, similarities between that war and the others? Well, one of the similarities is that the treatment of women. You know, throughout history, women have been raped by somebody or other, on all, often on all sides. You know, sometimes the conquering army, sometimes the liberating army, sometimes sometimes their neighbors, you know, the victimization of women. And I might just say that in the current wars, according to the UN, more women and children are killed than men now. And, of course, we don't know about that because we're, we don't know about anything. I mean, when you're doing your research, how do you find stuff out about what's going on now if it's being kept secret? You know, I only know about all the secret stuff 
because the New York Times did this investigation. Is that true? Now, I'd already sensed it, because if you read the papers carefully, you see that, oh, we still have 4,000 troops in this country. Oh, we still have, you know, 10,000 or whatever. But then you realize, well, okay, we've still got all these military people over there. What are they doing? Where are the reports? Why aren't we being told about it? And then, you know, thinking back to the way it was from 2003 to 2011, where we heard about the war all the time. And now where is it on the front page? It's nothing but Trump and his tweets. You did a play, The Lonely Soldier. Yes. It comes out of the interviews I did for Lonely Soldier, and it's a documentary play shaped into three acts, before, war, and after, to show the arc of how going to war changes a person. Seven women, veterans, and they take turns. It's not one monologue after another. They're split between them. So you can see they kind of go through time in parallel stories. It's all in the words of the real soldiers. So it becomes a, a very moving story about the effects of war. And, and they talk about their consciences too, not just poor little me, I have PTSD, but how they actually feel about the politics and how they feel morally about the war, which is quite fascinating to me. And when you created it, it's kind of an edited piece that you're trying to maneuver it around so that it works as a story. Yeah, I I cut and spliced and edited and shaped, but it was all very careful to stay true to the words of the soldiers themselves. And it's been performed several times. Yeah, and it's even been done in French in France. (laughs) It has a life of its own, and it's also published, so people can find it on my website. Helen Benedict, now you've been touring the country on this book and doing more research, I would guess. How do vets, Iraq vets, view Trump? Did any of them vote for him? Just like in the rest of life, there's a division. I've met plenty of veterans who are horrified by him and who are very informative about all the generals because, of course, each one of those generals has a reputation inside the military, which us outsiders might not know about. And then there are the ones that have always been very patriotic or very fundamentalist Christian or very white nationalist, you know. I mean, it's a microcosm of the whole country, so you get the whole range. Then let me ask you about a couple of those people and what you heard from people on the inside, Flynn and McMaster. Yeah, well, Flynn, I went to the U.S. Air Force to speak right after Flynn was hired. So I was asking about that, and they said, well, you know, Flynn facts is the way we talk about him because everybody knows in the military that he's a devotee of crazy conspiracy theories and that he's really off his rocker and that he lies all the time. And this was the week after he was hired. Everyone in the military was rolling their eyes. I knew. I mean, I can't say everyone, but I heard, I heard that a lot. Mattis was known, you know, as a hawk and a warmonger and too in love with war. That's the other thing I heard. And McMaster was by far the most respected, especially because of his book about Vietnam. His reputation in the military, I was told, was, was as one of its best intellects. And Kelly? I can't remember what people said about Kelly. I don't think he was on the radar when I was there. <laughs> so I haven't had the discussion about him. I would have liked to see more op-eds by people within the military assessing these guys. I did talk to another veteran I know who's a professor now about McMaster, and I said, I don't understand why he's with this reputation of integrity, why he's even taking this job. And the answer was, 
I'm really worried whether that integrity will stay intact. He might kill his reputation doing this, and it looks like he has. Well, there are those who say that a few of those people are there to kind of keep things from spinning even further out of control, but who knows? Who knows? Well, we're not hearing much from McPastors, but the last we did hear, he was defending Trump for some outrage. You know, if you don't defend <clears throat> Trump, you're gone. I mean, I thought maybe they are. They're in there. Maybe this is their military idea of doing duty to the country is to try and save the country from him. So I don't know. So far, it's not looking too good. Have you noticed big differences, any big differences since Trump was elected in talking to the vets, either one way or the other? Or is it just more of the same? I would say that like most of us, the vets I know and on my Facebook feeds and so on, I belong to some closed groups being much more overtly political because they're trained not to be. You know, It takes a while for them to feel comfortable saying what they think politically. But boy, they don't have any trouble saying what they think politically about Trump. And there's been some really impressive organizing of resistance among some of the veterans I know. For example, last March, some veterans got together with their interpreters and they went to Capitol Hill and they visited all their senators from their various states to protest and, uh, and demand that this Muslim ban not happen. That kind of political activity by veterans is, um, you know, is a moving thing to, to watch. Helen Benedict, now you've written Wolf Season. Are you working on another novel? I am. Is it the third in this <laughs> trilogy? It might be. There's actually a big leap in time between Sand Queen and this one. So... I might be working on one that's going to take place in between and be much more about refugees and veterans. And are you working on any nonfiction? No, I can't do it all at once. I have been writing a lot of essays in connection with the book tour and what's going on. I just had a piece, an op-ed in CNN about the sexual harassment stuff that's going on now. But I'm mostly I've been on book tour for a few and teaching. When my plate is cleared... I'm going to finish off this trilogy and move on to something completely different. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>